The degree of satisfaction and relief lessened each time she opened a new wound, each time she drank a mouthful of her own rapidly thinning blood. Towards morning, she was a whimpering mass of abstinence and anguish, anguish because she knew what had to be done if she was to live. John Adina Lindquist, let the right one in. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast focusing on the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm one of your hosts, Stephanie. And I'm your other host, Rachel. In honor of Valentine's Day, we're going to spend some time with some of the most seductive horror creatures. That's right, vampires. I mean, that's how everyone else celebrates, right? So here's to a vampiric Valentine's Day from us at Books in the Freezer. So, Stephanie, how excited are you that we're talking about vampires today? So stoked. I know we talked about it in our best of the year episode, but I know you read a lot of vampire books last year, so it just made sense. We had to do this episode, and I think you wanted to do it on the suitor side for sure, just so you can talk about all your feelings about vampires. Yes, I have so many feelings, and this is a great place to talk about that. Yes, as always, it's a a safe space. (laughs) I know vampires are probably some of your favorite kind of horror books. So let's just start right off the bat. Why do you like them so much? And please tell me it's not because you find them sexy. It is not because I find them sexy. I think there's just so many things about their being that adds interesting layers to the story. You know, whatever the rules are considering their immortality. So that's going to change the character in the way that life isn't a delicate thing for them or that they're jaded or that they're this kind of old soul that's trapped in this body. You know, the nature of them being a vampire, you know, makes them predatory. And sometimes they'll have maybe an ethical dilemma about that, about, you know, living with humans, but also having to hunt humans to survive. And so it's just really interesting to dive into a new story. And every time I open a vampire book, I get really excited to see like how the author handled the vampire lore, like what they put a twist on, you know, are these vampires scared of garlic? Like can these vampires go in the sun just to see what they did with it? I completely agree. I'm the same way. While you mentioned that it's one of your favorite topics, it's not like I don't enjoy them. I actually really like vampire stories too. So it was a lot of fun preparing for this episode. And I found that, yeah, every book handles it a little bit different. And it's good that you mentioned about the vampire lore because I didn't realize until we were preparing for this episode how far back the myths of vampires go. I ended up doing a little bit of research to find out that legends about vampires have existed For a really, really long time, like as far back as ancient Greece, Rome, and even Mesopotamia. Of course, these legends are a little bit different than the vampires we know today, but they all have different ideas surrounding creatures that drink blood. Some of them are spirits or demons. The modern understanding of vampires as we know them from our fiction originated in southeastern Europe, particularly in Transylvania. Mm. I'm sorry, I have a terrible accent, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just put that out there. There are different beliefs around the legend that became so predominant that I understand that there was actually a lot of mass hysteria around Transylvania that even led to public executions of people who were believed to be vampires. So think of witch hunts, but well, obviously in this case, vampire hunts. And I thought that was crazy. 
So the first fictionalized book about vampires was called Vampire with a Y by John Polidori, which came out in 1819, and Dracula didn't even come out until 1897, so quite a bit later, but that was the one that, of course, reached the popularity that really brought our concept of the modern vampire into existence, yeah. Exactly, so that's why it gets all the credit, but I kind of knew that, but, you know, it was good to kind of get to find out a little bit more about the history and fiction. I don't know there was that much of a gap between them. Yeah, it makes me wonder, and I, I didn't look it up, honestly, if there were other vampire books that kind of came out in between. I imagine there might have been some other people writing about this subject. I didn't check the date on Camilla by Sheridan LeFau, but that might fall in between there. So how would we describe the modern idea of a vampire? There's a lot of variations, but what would you say are some of the kind of key characteristics of a vampire in fiction or otherwise i would say most importantly they're defined by their need to drink blood i would say in most cases it's preferably human blood as like time has gone on and we've tried to create kind of an ethical vampire who you know wants to drink animal blood and spare human lives that i'll get into later but they do need blood to survive and most preferably human blood they are undead they usually get turned by other vampires And there's different rules on that, just depending on what you're reading. Oftentimes they have either super strength. In some cases, they'll have mind control abilities, which I know in a lot of cases is called like a glamour, like they'll put a glamour on you. Sometimes they have super strength. I think they have varying degrees of immortality. You know, there's every different kind of vampire has like the one thing that'll kill them, whether it's being decapitated or being, you know, a a stake through the heart. And they do have a variety of potential weaknesses from silver, you know, to garlic, holy water, you know, the the typical ones. Exactly. And it's hard to make a blanket statement because every author takes the idea and makes it a little bit different. And so it's hard to catch them all. But those are the core ones that we do tend to see, I'd say, in most stories. So I think we also need to touch a little bit on the role of sexuality in vampire stories, because even if we're not talking about urban fantasy, I feel like those elements are always there. How does that work with these stories? I know you know a little bit more about the history surrounding it than I do. Well, vampires in general are pretty seductive and pretty sexy and sexual creatures just because they have to get so close to people and suck their blood. And it's usually, you know, a bite, you know, on the neck. And it just requires a certain kind of intimacy. And that's a lot more than was usually shown in Victorian and Gothic times. And vampire fiction specifically was used as a vehicle to talk about LGBT themes. So it provided a space for authors to write about and use that openly, you know, in Victorian times. A lot of people point to Carmilla as being the first lesbian novel because all the action, all the fascination is happening between two women and I know the the vampire female character in this is inspired by Elizabeth Bathory, which, do you know about Elizabeth Bathory? I know nothing. I feel like you would. She was a lady in Eastern Europe that has that legend that she would, you know, kill virgins and bathe in their blood to maintain her youth. Yes, that does sound familiar. Yeah. That's the urban legend. It's not true, but, you know, that urban legend got spread and she just has this weird vampiric reputation. So... The Carmilla novel was inspired by her and her legend. There's also said to be some gay subtext in Dracula because of the scene where Jonathan Harker wakes up and like Dracula's wives are there. And then Dracula tells them to get away because this one is mine. Yeah. So some people like to point to that. 
And then a lot of people, I would say most people would point to, if we're sticking to horror and not urban fantasy, they would say that Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles have a lot of homoerotic overtones. Yeah, they're really woven into the story. I didn't actually know about the LGBT themes. I really have to reread Dracula now because, of course, that would have gone right over my head. I read that one years ago. So we'll, we'll get into that one in a moment. Yeah. That's really interesting. In a lot of the horror books we're going to mention, there are some really heavy themes of sexuality, which you don't see in other books. You know, well, a couple books these days try to be really tongue in cheek and do that with zombies or something, but it doesn't have the same effect. No, definitely not. It's weird because they're both undead. Something about that rotting flesh. Yeah. Just doesn't do it for people. I don't know. They're both undead, but vampires somehow are sexier than zombies. We'll start a campaign that zombies can be sexy too. (laughs) I'll be the only one in that campaign, I'm pretty sure. The Freakonomics podcast discussed basically what an economy would look like if vampires were real and out in the open. And it took into consideration their immortality and exchange of goods in terms of blood, which was really interesting. So my husband listens to Freakonomics because he is a economics and finance nerd. (laughs) So Uh he listened to this episode and we started talking about it. And he was asking me about instances where vampires were out in the open. So I pointed to like true blood. Yeah. And we started talking about like, okay, well, like, how does that work if vampires are out in the open? Like, is there someplace they can go get blood? And of course, in the True Blood universe in the HBO, I have not read the Charlene Harris books. But in the True Blood universe, they have, you know, like a drink called True Blood that gives them all the nourishment they would get from human blood. But you know, it's made like they don't, there's no human blood in it. Yeah, these vegetarian vampires. Yeah. So it was really interesting because it's like, okay, well, you know, the demand would be for here and, you know, people would go to a blood bank and then there wouldn't be any need for violence. And it was just really taking all these things into consideration. So it was a really funny episode to look at that with like a serious subject matter, a dorky deep dive. (laughs) Hey, I'm there for that. We've established my dorkiness. (laughs) So speaking of dorkiness, we decided to come up with a little bit of a list following with the prompt, you know, your friend is a vampire when dot dot dot. So I thought of, you know, your friend is a vampire when she's always drinking Bloody Marys, but seems confused when you ask her for a glass of tomato juice from her fridge. Also, she weirdly stands by the door when you go back to your place and insists that she won't come in until you invite her inside because she's quote unquote old fashioned. I love that one. Kind of few friends that are like that, which is making me wonder. When checking out a girl, he's always making these weird comments like, did you see the neck on that hottie? I bet she has amazing arteries. And when someone mentions a historical event, he'll make a joke like, that was a bad day. Like he was there, even though it took place hundreds of years ago. When you're going to meet your friend for drinks, and when you show up at the meeting place, you realize that she texted you the address for the local blood bank. Also, she doesn't do brunch or just anything during the day, ever. And your friends ask you to go shopping for a new bed, and of course, you wind up at the funeral home. And when you go out for dinner, he always just ate or just had a big lunch. So listeners, let us know if you enjoy these sections. We'll keep doing them. They're pretty goofy, but we have some fun making these lists. So let us know what you think. And now for our vampire book recommendations. So to start off the list, we're starting off with the most popular one of all. I'm going to talk about Dracula by Bram Stoker that both Rachel and I have read. Yes. So this is the classic vampire story. It's written in epistolary format. So it starts out, the first section is about a man named Jonathan Harker who goes to visit Castle Dracula in Transylvania. 
for what is supposed to be a real quick real estate transaction, but ends up being a traumatic experience when he's held hostage there, basically, and he's not allowed to leave. And he starts to just witness very strange and erratic behavior from the Count. And then the second storyline that's going on is Mina, who is Jonathan's fiance, is receiving letters from him. And her best friend Lucy starts exhibiting strange behavior. She starts sleepwalking. So in this story, the Count is the villain and has the majority of the traits that we consider vampire lore today. So he is repelled by garlic. He sleeps in a coffin like he turns into a bat. He doesn't have a reflection. All of the vampire tropes that we would associate you know, with vampires today are pretty much seen in Dracula. And it definitely is the inspiration for a lot of vampire literature, especially something like if you read Salem's Lot. And like at the beginning of Salem's Lot, when you read it, Stephen King says that it was, you know, very heavily inspired by Dracula. And I feel like those vampires are more on the classic side, just like Dracula. So I am rating this room temperature. It isn't terrifying, but there surprisingly were a few scenes that were really creepy. Like there's a scene that gave me the creeps uh, when Jonathan Harker is stuck in the castle and he's trying to escape and he makes it into the count's room where his coffin is i remember that scene that scene also creeped me out it's not just you yeah and he had to open the coffin and like get the keys he opens the coffin and dracula is sleeping with his eyes open and he has to get the keys off of his person i was like oh no oh no he sees you oh no just get him get him and leave yes a few things have not aged well though i did a reread of this a few months ago and uh there was a few things on this that got on my nerves and maybe it's because I'm a little bit more of a feminist now than I was in high school <laughs> when I read this but there was just you know certain things that when you read them again they stand out to you so the last part of the book Mina is turned almost turned into a vampire and so she gets this group of men that are fighting to go kill Dracula and save Mina And just the things they say about her had me rolling my eyes because they basically said they were going on this quest because of how Mina was just such a feminine and dainty woman. And their way of saying she was smart was that she had the brain of a man, but like the manner of a woman. I'm like, oh my God. But it wasn't that. Like there was just so much more of that just over And I don't know, I can deal with things being written in a different time and people having different values then, but there was just so much of this. Like it was every other page. I was getting so fed up with that. So yeah, keep that in mind. Some classics don't age that well. Do you have any thoughts about this? I pretty much agreed with everything you said. I mentioned I read it years ago, but I remember being surprised how much of our modern understanding of vampires came from that original story. Yes. Everything from garlic. There were just so many little bits. One thing I'm sure you'd agree with is that this book is worth reading just for the sake of understanding the origins of modern vampire stories that, you know, you just have to read it for that background. And I really did enjoy it. It's one of my favorite classics. I think it has some pretty creepy scenes. For today's standards, I would also put his room temperature, but I was remembering that exact same scene with the coffin and it's really stuck with me, which is saying something because I have a terrible memory when it comes to books, but I remember that scene very well. Going in a completely different direction, my pick is a much more modern take on vampires, and that is Fledgling by Octavia E. Butler, which I know you, Stephanie, have also read. Mm -hmm. 
This is a story that is told from the perspective of a supposedly young girl who wakes up without her memories. She does not know who she is and finds herself with an alarming, inhuman need for blood. She soon comes to realize that she is not actually a young girl, but instead is a genetically modified 53-year-old vampire. From there, she has to figure out who is trying to destroy her in order to save both herself and the people around her. And I really enjoyed the story for a lot of different reasons, particularly because of my love of other genres. I liked the fact that it took a science fiction angle to the vampire story, which I've never seen before. It's always more of that fantasy take if it's going to overlap with any other genres or have that crossover appeal. But I thought it was just a really interesting take in places it's implied that these vampires might potentially be aliens from another planet, obviously the genetic engineering portion surrounding this particular vampire who has some unique abilities. Unlike her brethren and sisters, she is able to walk in the sun without being injured in the same way. She has darker skin and vampires are really considered to be a separate species in one way or another. And I just thought it was a really creative spin, especially because in preparing for this episode, I did read several vampire books, honestly, pretty close together. So I think that was part of what I liked so much is this one was quite different and really took a different spin. So I didn't feel like I was reading the same story so many times over. I also liked that this story had a female main perspective, partly because of the origins of vampire stories. They do tend to be predominantly stories about male vampires if they have a gender. But even in the society, the vampires are more matriarchal, so the females take a more predominant role. This book did have some really interesting take on relationships. Vampires in this world have a symbiotic relationship with humans, but they take on multiple partners. You could almost describe their relationship, I guess, as being bisexual. They'll take on both male and female partners and don't live in monogamous relationships. But the main character, as I mentioned, while she is a 50-year-old vampire, she looks like a human girl, one that I think is said to be around like 13, 14. And I found that to be a really odd choice of the author to make the main character appear so young when she is going around and she has sex with her adult symbionts. And it was it was a strange choice. I kind of had to wrap my head around it and be like, okay, it's fiction, just go with it. But it comes back to that fact that vampire stories always have these strange sexual aspects to them and definitely brings up some weird consent issues. So I'm like, no, she's old, she just looks young, it's okay. But it was it was different for sure. In terms of scariness rating, I would put this one as room temperature. The vampires I didn't find were written to be very scary. It was more of an exploration of a different idea of the origins of vampires, a different take on them. Do you have any similar thoughts? I do. So after reading a lot of vampire books, I will say Octavia Butler handles the lore the best, in my opinion, just the way it works with humans and vampires coexisting, the give and take of that relationship, I think was thought out really well. The character Ina is genetically engineered to have darker skin to be able to walk out into the sunlight, you know, it gives her a chance to talk about racism even within the vampire community, because it's kind of this like ancient order of beings that are kind of just like these old white dudes. 
Oh, you're so right. I meant to mention that, so I'm glad you did that. Especially, yeah, vampires are always these pasty white old guys. Yeah. And to bring some diversity into the story. Yeah, and the main character experiences her own discrimination because she is the only dark vampire and it ends up being exactly a source of strength and gives her abilities that the other vampires don't have but at the same time they still look down at her oh i feel like she writes so many layers into her story i really like this one yeah this was a good one i'm pretty sure this was written in a post blade world like this wasn't the first like black vampire ever Yes, I was very uncomfortable with the sex scenes between the main character and her symbionts because she is like a like a 10-year-old girl, basically, in her body and what you would look like and see. And so those sex scenes were very uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> That's what I have to say about it. But other than that, I really enjoyed, I guess, her world building and the way she handled everything. I think out of most vampire lore that I read, it was the most well thought out. I'd agree with that. So what was your next pick? My next pick is one I have mentioned a bit. So it'll go on probation after this. I promise I won't bring it up again for a while. And this is Let the Right One In by John Adita Lindquist. And this takes place in 1980 Sweden. Oscar is a 12-year-old boy who's being bullied. He starts to have these murder revenge fantasies against his bullies. And he meets a strange neighbor named Ellie who only comes out at night. And we find out that Ellie is a child vampire, of course. Ellie is stuck at that 12-year-old age. We do find out that Ellie has been alive for a long time. But in this case, Ellie has the naivety of a child. The relationship between Ellie and Oscar is very young and innocent. And Ellie utilizes youth to feed when she needs to. The advantages of being a child vampire, of course, are that people don't feel threatened by you. And you are able to get people close to you because people do want to help, you know, children. So the title, Let the Right One End, that I didn't talk about last time, of course, refers to the lore that vampires have to be invited inside. And this is taken from the, ooh, I want to say Morrissey lyric, Let the Right One Slip In is kind of where he was inspired from. Ellie and Oscar have a pretty platonic relationship. There's nothing romantic. There's like a scene where they are you know, laying in bed together. And it's it's very innocent. There is nothing to it. There's no romantic feelings. I'd say the only point is like Oscar is kind of asking Ellie to be his girlfriend in a way. And Ellie looks at him and says, like, what if I wasn't a girl? Like, would you still feel this way about me? And in the movie, that's the only clue you get that Ellie might not be a girl. So in the book, you do discover that Ellie was a boy when Ellie was turned and the vampire that turned Ellie basically chemically castrated Ellie. Oh gosh. Ellie is genderless. Ellie never says the gender that Ellie is. So I would say if you're looking at Ellie, you would assume she's a female. And they know in, when people talk about Ellie, they do use the she pronoun. But in the book, it does get into that Ellie was a boy that was castrated. Right. It gets dark. So if you watch the movie, you would not know that backstory. That's only in the book. Oh, that gets really intense. Yeah. The book is a lot darker and a lot more intense than the movie. No kidding. In terms of creepiness, like I always am looking for horror books about really creepy children. Like is Ellie creepy? No, she kills people like strictly to survive. She's very cold about that in a way, but she's not creepy. She is very affectionate with Oscar. We see her through the eyes of her being Oscar's friend. So we don't see the creepiness. 
So how would you rate this one? I would put this in the fridge. I've mentioned before that there are some murder scenes that are particularly chilling. Side by side with the cruelness of the bullies, I know we've talked about that a lot of times in horror novels, authors will put in, you know, supernatural evil and then the evils that humans commit alongside them being so much worse. There are a lot of bullying scenes towards Oscar. There's horrific acts committed by other adults. Compared to the horrific acts committed by other adults, Ellie's acts definitely look like just a necessity to survive in comparison. No, for sure. So my next pick is The Lesser Dead by Christopher Buhlman. And this story is set in the dirty and dangerous underbelly of New York City in 1978 and follows the main character, Joey Peacock. He is an adolescent vampire that has spent the last 40 years living in the subway, spending his time womanizing and feeding on humans. However, things become dangerous when some kind of undead creatures move into the tunnels of Manhattan and start hunting his fellow vampires. I'm first off noticing that we have a theme. There's a lot of really young vampires in the stories we picked. I actually forgot that he was also quite young when he was turned. So I'm definitely noticing some themes here. While it is a novel, I almost call it a collection of vignettes because each chapter gives the reader a little snippet into a different part of Joey's life. He's basically telling you stories and saying, as a child, this happened. And when I was first turned, this happened. And so you need to be okay with a bit of a choppy narrative. But at the same time, it also allows the author to explore different aspects rather than just telling one particular part of his life. Certainly the book starts to focus towards this event where there are these different undead creatures showing up in the tunnels, but it's really more so about his entire life. The vampires in the story are very immoral and ambivalent to humans, which is something I think we see in a lot of these stories where they are very morally gray because they may have once been human, but their need for blood, needing to feast on other creatures, you know, it really changes their idea of right and wrong. And so you really need to be okay with characters that are morally gray. If you're going to read this one, you need to be okay that the characters are pretty unlikable. But I did find that Joey Peacock was still redeemable at times. They did give him a bit of a moral compass. And this is a story that definitely played into the idea of charm where you see mind control of humans. And for me, this led into some really interesting ideas of consent because in this world, often they're not necessarily killing the humans that they're feeding on, but rather just drinking their blood and letting them recover. And so they end up having sex with them. It was a little bit odd. So I think depending on how you feel about that kind of content in books, along the same lines, the vampires are very sexualized. Even though Joey looks quite young, he does have the mind of an adult at this point and does go around finding women and having sex with them and then potentially killing them off. It's a very gritty story. It's very much, as I mentioned, set in the dark underbelly of New York, and that plays into the plot a lot. So I like that they're not overly glamorized, but instead just shown as they would be. In terms of rating, I would put this one mostly as room temperature, although I do know people who are sensitive to harm to animals. There was one instant in there, but otherwise I wouldn't call this one particularly scary. I would put it as room temperature. My next pick is... Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice. This is the first book in the Vampire Chronicles. So the framing device in the narrative is that Louis is a few hundred years old. He's a vampire who is telling his life story to a reporter. When he starts out, he's talking about living on a southern plantation in New Orleans, getting turned into a vampire at the hands of the sinister Lestat after he is heartbroken over the death of his brother. 
roaming through New Orleans as a vampire, the child vampire, Claudia. So in the story, Louis paved the way for what I referred to earlier as the ethical vampire, which we would see later in like Twilight, where the Cullens are kind of, you know, those vegetarian vampires. Yes. <laughs> so Louis paved the way for that in that he tries to be ethical and he definitely struggles with the morality of being a vampire and what they have to do to survive. So he tries to feed on animals. He feels very guilty about killing people to survive. Whereas Lestat does what he needs to do to survive, enjoys it. And he almost gets really annoyed with Louis's, you know, inner struggle with this. You know, in Lestat's mind, he's like, I turned you into a vampire. You are immortal and powerful. And you're sitting there and whining about it. You know, that's kind of where Lest- how I read Lestat in the story. This was also a big turning point in vampire literature because this was the first time a vampire was the protagonist and got to show his side of the story. So the inner trials and torments that they go through. And in the book, they also turn Claudia, who is a child, In the movie, she's played by a very young Kirsten Dunst. She's turned into a vampire at a young age. And in this instance, vampires don't age. You know, you're just stuck at whatever age you're at when you get turned. And so she struggles with the fact that she is in this childlike body, but her mind and she basically matures in every other way. So she struggles with the fact of having needs, (laughs) but being a child and just being stuck that way forever. What's really interesting and very heartbreaking is that Anne Rice wrote this book after the death of her young daughter. So it's really interesting to look at that through the lens of Claudia, someone who is going to be a child forever. Just like when you lose someone, you know, they're basically at that age that you remember them last. Like, you know, in her mind, her daughter is going to be that age forever, just like Claudia is going to be you know, permanently a child. I had not heard that. That is so that sad. That is really sad. <laughs> That was interesting to think about. I really enjoyed this. I am currently on hold for the Vampire Listat, and I do want to continue on with the series. So I would put this as room temperature. It's not scary. I would say, if anything, it gives you a lot to think about and a very different take on vampires. And it's very interesting to see the relationships and the new mindsets and ideas towards vampires, especially through the eyes of kind of this old jaded protagonist who is just over it and he's just telling a story and like yeah and then we did this and then this happened so it was really interesting i have not continued on with the series so as far as i know i am only familiar with this first book interview with the vampire that sounds great my last pick is maybe a bit of a cheat because i went with a graphic novel do it all right good (laughs) because i can't change course now i picked american vampire the first volume by scott snyder and stephen king This is a graphic novel series that gives a fictionalized historical account of the origins of vampires in North America. The graphic novel actually tells two separate stories over two timelines, with the chapters going back and forth between the story written by Snyder and the story written by King. In King's story, it's set in the days of America's Wild West, so I love these cowboy stories, apparently. (laughs) The readers get to learn the origins of Skinner Sweet, who was the original American vampire who was stronger, faster than any of the vampires that were ever seen before from Europe. And then Snyder's story follows Pearl, a young woman who lived in the 1920s in Los Angeles, and she was brutally turned by vampires, and as a result decides to set out 
on a path of revenge against those European monsters who tortured her and abused her. I really liked how it brought in that historical aspect because we know that vampire myths are so old. The idea of how would they have been woven into different aspects of history if vampires were real. I think particularly someone like yourself might actually enjoy this a little more than I did since it's very much focused on American history. I didn't know quite as much about some of the particular events they were discussing in the book, but they're probably things that would be more commonplace to you. I mentioned I loved the part set in the Wild West, though. The artwork I've got to talk about is fantastic. It was dark and brooding and incredibly gruesome. The vampires were shown to be very dark. I almost describe them more as monsters and not those classic sexy people with pointy teeth. They really do look like creatures on the page that are a little bit more ambiguous than our common idea of what they would look like. And I've only read the first volume, but I understand that the series continues on and follows vampires into the 1930s and the 40s and, you know, kind of interweaves how vampires interacted with humans even during the Second World War, which sounds really interesting. So I do want to continue on and see what happens. In terms of scariness rating, I'd put this one in the fridge. It's not outright terrifying, but with that visual aspect, I found the scenes very gruesome to read. Getting to actually see the vampires attacking and killing their victims made this book more intense because of its formatting. So that's what I almost would recommend to you because it's vampires. I know you don't do as much with graphic novels, but you've been trying them out. So that's what I'm tempted to recommend to you. I think you might enjoy this one quite a bit. No, that sounds really interesting. Like I'm very intrigued. (laughs) So I might have to put that on hold at my library because that sounds completely up my alley. And I've been getting into graphic novels. So I will definitely have to check this out. Nice. I hope you do. Well, should we talk about some non-bookish things that we are loving lately? Definitely. All right, I want to go first because I am obsessed with this movie. I just finished watching it, and that is Babadook, which is a story that follows a widow named Amelia, who has been struggling to deal with her troubled six-year-old son, Samuel. He is a very strange boy who is continually acting up. He throws these horrific tantrums and has become preoccupied with fighting imaginary monsters. One night, Samuel asks his mother to read a pop-up storybook that he finds called Mr. Babadook, which is about a tall, pale-faced humanoid with a top hat and pointed fingers who torments his victims after they become aware of his existence. Amelia is disturbed by this book because she doesn't even know where it came from. And soon after, Samuel becomes convinced that the Babadook is real. And the story just takes off from there. I have so many thoughts about this. I'll try to keep it brief. But first, I love stories, as I mentioned, about creepy children. And the actor who plays Samuel just nailed his role. He was just so out of control. He was violent and creepy. And just the way he acted, the way he spoke, the way he looked at his mother, you could just see these dark preoccupations in his mind. And I found myself going back and forth saying, well, is he just a really troubled boy? Or is he maybe possessed? Is something else going on? And at the same time, the mother is also really unstable. We learn really early on, so it's not a spoiler, that the husband died in the car accident when driving his wife to the hospital when she was pregnant with Samuel. And he basically did not survive that crash. And so she had to raise Samuel by herself. And she never recovered from that. So she is barely holding on. 
she is basically falling apart and is really incapable of dealing with her son. So this movie is very psychological. You could almost believe this boy is just simply the result of this troubled childhood, a mother that isn't quite capable perhaps of fully loving her son and is holding back in her affections, or is something more so going on with this character Babadook that is kind of playing in the back of their mind. He's showing up in their dreams. And I found myself just going back between being so sympathetic for these characters and at the same time terrified of them. It's just such an emotional movie, but at the same time, I would still call it very creepy. It starts out a little bit slower, a little bit quieter, but I would definitely call it horror. It does escalate as the movie goes on, and I loved the scenes surrounding the Babadook. It was just awesome. I think anyone who likes the character of Slenderman will also really appreciate this movie. I just, oh, I loved it. I loved it. I cannot recommend this one enough. I'm pretty obsessed. We're only at the beginning of the year, but this is already a potential favorite. I don't know how I'm going to top this. I really loved this movie, too. Oh, you've seen it? Yes. I'm preaching to the choir, then. <laughs> I think the director just did such a good job getting intimate and really getting the emotions. Like, I was watching it. I felt Amelia's frustration with her son. I felt her, like, hopelessness at her, like, dead-end job. And you're right. That child actor was amazing at just being out of control and throwing those fits and you just not knowing what's going on, but also just feeling so bad for Amelia and just dealing with the fact of like, what happens if you don't feel things that society says are supposed to come naturally to you and having doubts about, you know, relationships and stuff. And the Babadook is just so creepy. It just has this like slow, creepy vibe at the beginning and it just escalates as it goes on. I absolutely loved it. Yes. I feel like the theme of my recommendations is at the beginning of this podcast, I said I don't like science fiction, but weirdly, all of my recommendations are on the science fiction side. <laughs> I love that. I'm slowly winning you over. <laughs> so my recommendation is a podcast. It's called The Bright Sessions. And this is a fictionalized, you know, dramatized series. But I would say the... A prompt for this is like what if the x-men went to therapy and so they take place in the therapist dr bright's office and so the episodes are like 30 minutes and they are basically the recording of a therapy session between dr bright and her patients that have you know superhuman powers and so she deals with them and they'll talk about like she has a patient who is an empath and a patient who spontaneously time travels. And so you're hearing the conversations, the characters keep coming back. So you see growth, you see them implementing the things that they learned in therapy, and you see kind of a bigger overarching plot as the story goes on. And then at the end of the episode, Dr. Bright speaks directly into the recorder and leaves memos for herself. You know, she'll be like, okay, like patient two, you know, is experiencing this, this, and this. It's really interesting, especially if you're super nosy like me and you're always just wondered what goes on in people's therapy sessions. It's on its third season. It's very well produced, very well acted. And I went on the website and it says it's currently in production for television which will be interesting to see how they do that. I think I would love that. Yeah, they're really short episodes too. Oh, I can definitely do that. That sounds right up my alley. And a TV show sounds really fun. I hope like Netflix picks it up or something. That would just be great to see. Yeah, I'm just interested like how they're going to do it. Is it just going to be like the cameras in the therapy room? Because that's kind of the whole point of it is like we only hear what happens in that room. 
I'm excited. Yeah, you've been definitely picking more sci-fi last while. So I love that. Yeah, that's the underlying theme of this podcast is Stephanie slowly getting into sci-fi, even though she said she didn't like it. (laughs) We also got some new reviews on iTunes. So thank you so much, guys. So we got a five-star review. Great stuff from Misnich. It says, I'm relatively new to podcasts and stumbled upon books in the freezer. I really enjoy it as they not only discuss horror books, but also TV shows and movies. You can tell they do their research and love talking about their subject matter. I'm hooked and encourage others to not only listen, but subscribe. I agree with Misnich. I think they have a point. (laughs) Thank you so much. Another rating, five stars, new favorite podcast from Pixie Amy R. Recently found The Shades of Orange on YouTube, and after binge watching her past videos, I found out she had a podcast about horror. So, yay, Rachel. That's so great. And I guess on the flip side, for people who don't know, we've mentioned before, but we both have YouTube channels where we talk about books, not just horror, but all the books that we're reading. So if you are someone who didn't come from our YouTube channels, if you're curious to see our faces and see a little bit more of what we're reading, definitely check us out there. And a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. We recently launched our Patreon site to cover the cost of running this podcast and storage subscription and all that. So we just want to give a big shout out to our patrons, Laura, Liz, Devin, and Emily. Thank you so much. We could not do this without you. And of course, Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes Every other Tuesday, you can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod. You can check us out on Instagram at Books in the Freezer or shoot us an email at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. You can find the show notes for this episode and all other episodes at booksinthefreezer.wordpress.com. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. Or like we mentioned before, on YouTube on That's What She Read. And I'm Rachel. You can find me on Twitter at Shades underscore Orange or on YouTube and Instagram at The Shades of Orange. Join us next time for Books in the Freezer. (laughs) <laughs>